it's mind-bending still to me that it's just this just this monetary innovation it's just i never thought it would be such a philosophical rabbit hole in so many different directions and i don't know sometimes i catch myself like the things i'm reading about or thinking about i'm like how did this all how did bitcoin lead to all this <laughs> yeah welcome back to the freedom footprint show the bitcoin philosophy show with knut svanholm and me luke the pseudo fan in today's episode we're joined by our friend robert breedlove host of the what is money show home to some of the best deep dive series into the world of money and Bitcoin, including the Sailor series with Michael Saylor. Our conversation today is inspired by many of the books that have defined our personal experiences and Bitcoin journeys. Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson, Human Action by Mises, Economic Science and the Austrian Method by Hoppe, and Leela by Robert Percy. We also discuss value and its connection to praxeology. We reflect on communication, language, and argumentation ethics, and finally, we ask Robert for his answer to the age-old question, what is money? Curious? Keep listening. But before we jump in, a quick reminder that the best way to support the show is to send us a boost or stream us some stats using a Value for Value podcasting app such as Fountain. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, check it out on Fountain. You can earn sats from listening and you can support us and all your other favorite shows. You can also support us on Geyser or send sats directly to our lightning address, freedom at geyser.fund. And if you want to exchange your dirty fiat, you can support us on Patreon. All our links are in the description. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the channel. Even if you're listening as a podcast, head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe to us there. It would be a big help. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors, Amber App, Wasabi Wallet, Orange Pill App, The Bitcoin Way, and Geyser. All their information is in the description. We'll be talking a bit more about them later. And now, without further ado, here is Robert Breedlove on the Freedom Footprint Show. Rob, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for joining us. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you on, Rob. Um, I've been on your show three times, I think. So it's about time you come to ours. Yeah, I think so. I'm overdue. <laughs> so we, we met briefly in Riga. We were both busy, you a bit busier than us, as usual. And you did a bunch of interviews there. Um, I mean, you're, uh, you, you worked like a Terminator and looked like one as well for that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you've been doing a ton of interviews. Um, and I'm really impressed by that work, work ethic of yours. Like it's, it's, uh, it's always on, it seems. Thank you. Well, I mean, you know how the, podcasting thing is like when you're doing it it's very intense there's especially when you're at events and everyone's there you get a lot of juice for the squeeze by just really getting all the speakers or whoever's attending the event together and knocking out a bunch of interviews but then you get to you know turn down hopefully for a few days after that and so it seems like it's kind of like sprint and then rest type of work work frequency yeah it's and, a good um, lifestyle <laughs> yeah exactly uh, so who did you interview in Riga? Yeah, we had Adam back. Talked a little bit about the block size wars with him. Uh, in addition to some other things they've been doing over at Blockstream. Talked to Dylan LeClaire. Spoke with, um, I don't want to mispronounce his name now. The last Austrian economist in Austria. Uh, Rahim Tagesadigan. Rahim, thank you. Had a good lengthy conversation with him. Uh, and a few others. So yeah, it was a good time. And then we're, it looks like, uh, this isn't final yet, but it looks like I'll try to go to Lugano 
Oh, excellent. Uh, We're coming October. to Lugano too. Yeah, so we'll try to do the same thing there, get some people together, have some interviews. And then also, uh, I'll be at Jordan Peterson's event at the end of October, beginning of November in London. And so I'll be interviewing some of the speakers at that event there. So that'll be not, obviously, that's not a Bitcoin event, um, but definitely a lot of people in the, let's say, freedom-focused universe, um, hopefully having them on for some in-person interviews as well. So I'm super excited for all that. You gave me the perfect segue, Rob. Uh, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so uh, I'll just give you like a quick little bit of of background, but ba like basically, you and the Sailor series, you you were my orange pill, absolutely. And oh, nice. So, you know, first personal thank you for that. But the You're way I found you was uh, when you went on Lex Friedman, and I'd been watching kind of all of his crypto and Bitcoin related people at the time. But yours was, well, unique. And the thing that I latched onto was somewhere in the middle there, you mentioned Jordan Peterson, and you called Maps of Meaning one of your most meaningful books, like the, the books you would recommend the most. I believe it was Human Action and Maps of Meaning were the, the two you mentioned there. And well, basically, I've been a Peterson guy for mm, a long time now. Um, helped me through my my younger adulthood uh, so to say i'm still young but uh you know getting there um but the the main thing i guess that i wanted to to ask or to to talk to you a little bit about was uh so i'm rereading maps of me again and and it just kind of it's all fantastic stuff but can can you tell a little bit about what you got out of that book what uh, maps of meaning means to you Ooh, yeah um yeah, the, the the books that I mentioned on the Lex Fridman podcast were Maps of Meaning, Human Action, and then Robert Persig's book, Leela. And I think reading those three books together is one, a good way to, to dematerialize your worldview in the sense that you'll move away from being a materialist into someone that understands the world uh, just through a different framework, right? A framework of value, a framework of praxeology in the case of human action, um, and maybe even a, a different metaphysical framework when you use something like Leela, that the book that really posits that value is the fundamental ground stuff of reality in a way. So I just thought those three books are very interesting to read together, which I just happened to do at that time. But Maps of Meaning specifically, I think, Peterson, I mean, he's drawing very heavily on like Carl Jung and and others, but he's basically putting forth uh, a worldview that's non-materialist, right? It's more, has more to do with value, um, has more to do with you know what you value actually determines what not only how you see the world, but what you actually see in the world. One of the experiments he often likes to cite, cite is the selective attention experiment where there's uh, people are charged with the task of counting the number of basketball passes between these two teams on a video. And when they do that, they fail to see the six foot man in a gorilla costume come into the middle of the screen and wave his arms around for a few seconds and walk off screen because they're so focused on the task of actually counting the number of passes. So the point being that when they value achieving the objective of counting the number of passes that you actually fail to see six foot gorillas walking into the middle of your frame. Um, 
And so value valuation or the process of valuation is actually determining what you see in the world, not just how you see the world. And, you know, the book maps of meaning, I don't know that I'd recommend it to everyone. It's very dense. I think Peterson said he spent 15 years and three, three hours a day for 15 years writing it, something just, you know, just an absurd amount of work went into it. The sentences are very dense, but he, he goes down a lot of the, the psychological rabbit holes that Jungian psychology gets into. I really got, one of the most fascinating parts of that book for me was towards the end when he's talking about alchemy um, and just the nature of what alchemy was said to be, you know, it was said to like, be a process that paralleled the passion of Christ. It was the pursuit of the lapis philosophorum, which was the philosopher's stone, which was said to be the incorruptible substance that would serve as an antidote for tyranny in the world. And I, you know, I did, there were just so many parallels with Bitcoin there. Also like by interacting with the philosopher's stone, it actually makes you better. And so we often talk about Bitcoiners going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and experiencing personal transformations. You know, I don't, maybe I, maybe I've drank too much of the orange Kool-Aid, but I definitely saw a lot of parallels between Peterson's discussion of alchemy and the philosopher's stone to, to Bitcoin overall. And then, you know, where I think JBP, or I guess, obviously saying maps of meaning, you could have also called the book maps of value in a way. And there's a lot of talk about meaning and a lot of talk about value, but that it, it sort of doesn't get into it doesn't he doesn't have Mises in his worldview, right? He doesn't have praxeology, he doesn't have human action. So it's like he fails to see this deep connection, perhaps even you might even say value and action are like the same thing, right? All human action is an expression of value. Um, I'm not completely convinced it's just human though. Like I think purpose might be something that exists beyond just the human domain. Obviously, that's more of a metaphysical debate. But I think that in JVP's work, it keeps the matter of value rather abstract and that he doesn't ground it out in the practical realities of, of, actually, of actual human action. And I think that's where you get a lot of value by plugging in, reading the book, Human Action and, and Mises. And then uh, again, with, with Leela, you get this sort of metaphysical grounding um, in addition to those two books that really just sort of rounds out the counterpoint to the materialist worldview you might say yeah the density of of maps of meaning is is yeah it, it's it's quite something i i've appreciated his his uh, lecture series on that topic uh, which kind of distilled that and made it a little bit more accessible but when he when he came out with 12 rules for life i i'd actually been hoping for like a like a maps of meaning light instead and sort of the rules for life series is that but it's it's of course, it's couched in in this framing that's supposed to make it ultra accessible, and yeah, that's that's had maybe mixed success, I would say. But yeah, the I, I really like your point, I guess, about the that maps of value could be an, an alternate title, and and um, certainly agree that that his his uh, lack of the praxeological point is glaringly obvious when you've been looking at that uh, side of things. But yeah. Um, that was that was kind of my uh, comments there, but Knut, any yeah, uh, not curious. When did you last speak to Jordan? I mean, we've traded emails about the event, so just over the past several months. 
but spoken to him, actually spoken to him. I haven't spoken to him since we did our thing in Miami. Okay. So, so in, do you think he's properly orange pill at this point? Do you see, we no. see some hints, uh, back and forth, but then once in a while he, he says something sort of counter to the Bitcoin ethos in terms of like, you know, internet anonymity and stuff like that. And he doesn't really seem to grasp the importance of, of privacy or just have a, a different, a different outlook than on that topic than most Bitcoiners. Um, so, so where do you think he is in his, um, rabbit hole j journey? Well, I, I would definitely say he is not properly orange pilled yet. Um, as we all know, that takes whatever X hundred hours to get to that point, somewhere between one and a few hundred hours, I guess, depending on who you are, what approach you take, et cetera. Uh, I doubt he's spent that much time at all. Like, it seems like he paid attention to Bitcoin in the bull market. And then when bull market ceased, he kind of stopped paying attention. Um, he still tweets things out though. Like, can Bitcoin fix this? You know, he'll be tweeting out some. Yeah. Oh, this is the last week, right? Yeah. Something. Something. Uh, oh, Australia moving people to a cashless society. I think they were just turning off physical cash, you know, and he's saying, oh, can Bitcoin fix this? And we're like, oh, of course. That's a counterparty, basically rug pulling you effectively. And so Bitcoin's money without a counterparty. So yeah, Bitcoin does fix that. No one's going to turn off Bitcoin on you, right? Whereas it can basically turn off physical cash. So uh, his curiosity is there. Where is he at on his journey? I'm not entirely sure, but he will be the first to admit to you that he doesn't have a strong understanding of economics in general. Even the way he describes money, you know, he describes money as trust. And again, I think this is, you get very muddy with the language here because I would lean more on Nick Zabo's perspective of money being the trust minimized asset, right? The thing that I can use in exchange with the least need to trust anyone, right? Least counterparty risk. And so, but again, the trust is an ambivalent term, right? Because it's like, okay, there's a, there's the least need for interpersonal trust, but it's the same thing as saying, you have trust in the integrity or credibility of the, the monetary properties associated with the money. It's like saying, okay, when I walk across a bridge, am I trusting an individual to keep or individuals to keep the bridge intact? Or am I trusting principles of civil engineering that were properly applied? You know, so it's, it's interpersonal versus impersonal trust. And so when he just says money is trust, I think it's very much ambivalent and, and not that useful. So there's that. And then again, you know, I would love to hear him really try to expand upon the question, what is value? Because I don't know what value is other than what is expressed in human action. Like what else is value other than what is expressed in human action? And so for all of his focus on meaning and value, I don't think, I, I would like to hear what grounding definition he has for that because if you really come to understand that then um the, you know a lot of the arguments he's putting forth would just plug straight into praxeology and then he would go down the mises rabbit hole and then presumably he would get thoroughly orange pilled in the process so yeah, would we love the, to see that the, yeah <laughs> would, would love to see that um but who knows you know he's also he's an older guy you know i don't know 
how many more rabbit holes he's he's got left to go down. So on that note, what what is what is your answer, your personal answer to the question, what is money? I wish I had only one for you. Um, the thing, okay, I'll I'll say this first that the most interesting thing for me on this three almost three year journey now doing the podcast the what is money show asking this question to i don't know how many we've had 360 something episodes probably definitely over 100 guests you know a lot of the episodes are long form series so we have the same guests over and over but i'd say we're we're got to be over 100 guests and the fact that there are so many different answers to that question that makes sense in certain contexts, um, it's like asking one of these other profound questions like, you know, what is truth? What is justice? What is beauty? What is love? You know, you would think that these very essential terms that we use would have very clear definitions that might be your in intuitive position. It's like, well, of course we should know what truth is. You know, it's like one of the most important things in the world where we talk about it all the time. But then when you actually get into it and you try to define truth, you see that philosophers have been debating it for many, many centuries and it continues to be a debate and there's different forms of truth, right? There's pragmatic truths and transcend transcendental truth, et cetera, et cetera. So, Money, for some reason, is one of those terms, apparently, one of these very potent, uh, essential terms. You know, it's an essential tool, obviously. Everyone, every trading society has money or some form of money. Uh, you could also say that money is more of an attribute, right, than, than necessarily a thing. Yeah, an, adje uh, an adjective is what we said in the last uh, talk we had. Like, yeah, an uh, adjective, right, because every asset that is traded in a marketplace has some degree of moneyness, which is commensurate with liquidity. And the thing that has the most moneyness is the thing we call money, basically. So the, the very interesting realization that I've had or am having still is how indispensable, let's say, let's say insufficient languages, first of all, for describing this complex, fluid world continuum that we all inhabit. You know, we're using these little discrete data packets called words and trying to map it onto this fluid domain we call reality. So it's insufficient, yet it's also indispensable and in that it is the best tool we have for, well, thinking, communicating, rationalizing, reflecting, you know, calculating, etc. So that's been my big takeaway i guess from doing the show not takeaway i'm not it's nothing to take away it's something i'm still thinking about it's like how do you describe the nature of language itself and it's taken me into a lot of rabbit holes um now to answer your question a little more directly i still think the most useful conception of money is as a storehouse or reservoir of time you know you might say human time you might say lifetime and it's not just money though it's, it's really capital all right capital is the result of humans spending time effort and energy to create things 
that amplify the productivity of others or allow future consumption for themselves or other people. So all capital is kind of like a, a stored form of human time. But then money is just the, the form of capital that is most liquid, most tradable. And so it becomes a, a very close reflection of time. And you see that in just people's day-to-day use of money, right? And that you go to work, you trade time for money, and then you take that money back into the marketplace and you trade that money for the time of others. So people will serve you at the restaurant or building you a house or making you shoes or whatever the thing is. So I think there's a lot of intuitive value in framing it as time. And then I think it's also very useful for explicating the malevolent nature of central banking. When you're like, okay, if there's a currency counterfeiting monopoly, everyone's forced to use this stuff. They're stealing purchasing power through you know, arbitrarily inflating the, the money supply. Well, what does that equate to if money is time? Okay, it's systematic time theft, right? People are having their time stolen systematically with every dollar printed. So, um, I guess that is still the answer that I lean on the most. I also think, you know, obviously Sailor bringing this whole perspective of money as energy to the table is a big deal because you could equally argue it's, well, money is time, money is energy, or as we've often said too, money is power, right? And power is a product of time and energy, right? It's the, I think power is the capacity to move energy over time, right? Or perform work over time, something like that in a physics sense. So again, you ask this question, what is money? And you end up in very fundamental domains like physics and, um, you know, time. Like what is time? Time's probably the most mysterious thing in the universe. So it's maybe not useful from like a very practical standpoint to say money is time, but I think it's very useful from a philosophical standpoint and giving people somewhat of an intuitive explanatory framework to deal with this very abstract, mysterious notion. All right. So about communication and language in general, um, there's some points I have there. Uh, like if, if we want to apply the non, non-aggression principle, and if we want to not use violence in any shape or form or threats thereof, then in my mind, at least communication is the only tool we have left. Like it's, it's not only, you know, a tool, it's the tool that's there. There are no other tools in the toolbox. Once, once you, once you, once you do not allow yourself to use force anymore. So that's the only thing we have. So we need, so clear definitions of words are uh, crucial to that. And that's why one of the things I like so much about Mises in particular, that he's very, very careful with words and uh, the definition of them. And to, uh, I mean, I do agree that truth is a, a, a very hard word to define, but the word true, the words true and false in a sense are the, the binary of any language because we define everything else by having these, this binary base layer of language, which is that is true and that is false. I mean, is truth hard to define? Yes, that is true. I mean, there's always, you can always boil down communication to these yin yang ones and zeros, true and false. So, so the word true is in a sense easier to define than the word truth. 
and even easier than the word truthfulness, which is very hard to define, um, mm. because that implies some form of subjectivity. But what what do you say to that? What what are your thoughts? So there's a strange thing here. Okay, first of all, to the importance of, and maybe this is why money is so hard to define as well. But I would say words, right? Language. This is a form. Words are a media of exchange, just like money is a, you know, Mises would say money is a universal medium of exchange. Well, I would say so are words, right? We're, we're just using them to exchange as a medium to exchange human conceptions or ideas, whereas money we're using to as a medium of exchange for actual goods and services, capital, right? The results of human action, let's say. So maybe it's because of these, these intermediary devices they're a little bit hard to pin down and define um i do agree with you that absent rationality all that really remains is raw power right it's might is right if you can't have precise definitions that both people have consensus on which is obviously very important your notion of the number seven needs to match my notion of the number seven for us to have rational communication about mathematics for instance which is another way of saying there has to be social consensus on each term. If you don't have that, right, if you have a lack of consensus or no language at all, no rationality, no rational argumentation, then what's left, right? It's just pure animality. Just who, who can beat up who? Well, this, this boils back to uh, Hoppe's argumentation ethics, which I find so insanely fascinating because like, even if we don't have consensus on what the number seven means, we can allow ourselves to agree to disagree. And like, there's where conversation ends, but as long as there's no, you know, property to fight over, we can still agree to disagree. Well, you can, you, you can agree to disagree to the extent that rational communication is possible between you. That's the point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. And, um, what's so fascinating here about Bitcoin is that it's nothing but uh, uh, an agreement to disagree. Like, w <laughs> that is what Bitcoiners do. We agree to disagree. And because we know that it's, it's, uh, it's harder to, it's more expensive to try to cheat the system than to just follow the rules. And also, like, I, I find it so inf insanely fascinating that Bitcoin has sort of teared down that wall between money and language. It is the same thing now. It is just communication. Like we, we provably so we can exchange goods and services for a, for a number, which we can hold in our heads. And uh, we don't need anything but that. We, it's just communication. And all the computers involved are just an extension of our mind and all of this uh, mumbo jumbo uh, about all the time, like how you are your Bitcoin. Like there's a, since they are information, there's no nothing separating you yourself from your bitcoin really it's it's just an extension of your mind it's it lives with within you and that, I, I think that that is what makes it so obvious that it's communication and if money is just communication well that changes everything like but so so this whole notion that we're being robbed by inflation is that really involuntary or did we put ourselves in that situation? Did we, did humanity like choose to trust these things? And was that a bad choice? Like how, 
how enforced were government um, issued currencies really and how much did we just fall for it like on mass and back to the very the importance of precise definitions here i would say that yeah holding an inflationary currency or a fiat currency where you can have your purchasing power stolen via inflation is voluntary however it is not consensual uh and mr kinsella i can thank him for taking me to task on this i used to always talk about voluntary exchange how important it is he's like well actually the definition of like he used the example of the mugger right when you get mugged in the back alley someone puts a gun to you and says give me your wallet well, you voluntarily hand the mugger your wallet, right? You control your arm and decide, you know, the cost of me saying no to this guy is higher than the benefit of me giving up my wallet. So I'm going to hand him my wallet voluntarily. However, you're doing it under the threat of violence or coercion. So you're not surrendering your wallet consensually, although you are doing it voluntarily. Uh, an example of something that's involuntary would be a seizure or a heart attack, right? Something that you can't control. You just, your biology just controls you basically in that situation. So when I look at central banking, you have a legal monopoly that preserves the currency counterfeiting um, or arrogates the currency counterfeiting privilege to one group of shareholders and allows them to externalize that onto everyone else, right? The guns are pointed out, as I always like to say. They're protecting the uh, central bank currency counterfeiting monopoly, but the guns are pointed out such that everyone else is effectively forced to use it. Now, again, you're not forced. Like Again, it's still voluntary. We could all just choose to have used physical gold all this time and said, no, we're never going to use your paper money. But obviously, as a means of practicality, that doesn't work. It's hard to buy coffee with gold, right? It's hard to move gold around safely. There's all these problems with with using gold for day to day transactions um, in a way that's not that's not centrally custodied. So, or any other commodity for that matter. Yes, exactly. So, I answer the question. It's like yes, holding an inflationary currency is voluntary. You're doing it voluntarily. You could sell all your dollars and buy physical gold and put it in your backyard. Now with Bitcoin, it's even easier, right? You can just hold Bitcoin. So every time you do choose to trade something $4 or hold dollars in an account, you're doing that voluntarily, but your purchasing power nonetheless is being stolen from you non-consensually and that you're participating, even though you've voluntarily put yourself into this legal monopoly, you're not voting for uh the counterfeiting of currency right you're not you're not supporting it you're not approving it you're not really i guess you could argue you're opting into it if you have the right level of understanding but most people clearly don't and that level of under general level of understanding is intentionally kept low i always like to talk about i i have a master's degree in accounting and finance right you would think i would know something from my mainstream education about central banking, about the nature of money, something, right? It's literally just the language of business. Everything we learn is about how money moves in, in and out of businesses, how taxation works. My focus was in taxation. Yet there is not one 
single line of education given to me about Austrian economics, the nature of money, no talk about central banking, uh, no talk about the trade-offs and opportunity costs that governments and bureaucracies and central banks face. You know, they're just treated as these omnipotent organizations inside of the textbooks, right? The government just puts new currency into circulation and takes new currency out of circulation. Like, you don't, there's a black box there that the education system doesn't go into. So it's pretty clear that um, the existing paradigm seeks to protect itself intellectually by not going into the nature of money, where it comes from, Austrian economics, et cetera. Um, so yes, it is voluntary, but not consensual. Yeah. Funny, funny. You should give that answer because I, I, uh, I love the Kinsella series you did, the, the series you did with Stefan Kinsella. Uh, oh, thank you. and it was influenced why I nowadays call myself a consensualist rather than a voluntarist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. think I w- went from libertarian leaning to anarcho-capitalist, which is sort of too aggressive. And, uh, <laughs> Than voluntarist and now consensualist because I, I think consensualist frames it better. Like I, I'd like as many interactions between human beings to be consensual as possible. That like that should be the 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 the, the guiding principle for 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 your opinion on everything else. Like if you have that, it's like the apex of human rationality, right? It's like of course. You- you want to respect that we're all rational beings and that we're all capable of deciding for ourselves. So we don't need to be coerced into doing things. And I think this notion is pretty obvious if you look at the dating market, right? Um, now, there have been arranged marriages. There still are arranged marriages. There still is some degree of pressure, perhaps in some cultures, to put people into certain uh, marital arrangements. But in general, I think the the moral intuitions in the West are that we should all be free to choose our own partner, right? Our, our partners would date whoever we want, marry whoever we want, if we want to get married. It would be pretty hard to sell the idea of having a non-consensual dating market, right? Where someone gets to coerce you into being uh, their boyfriend or girlfriend. And, you know, another way that I've framed this and it's not always very popular, but the difference between a job and slavery is consent, right? You can quit the job, you can say no, and you can go get another job. If you're a physical slave in the traditional sense, well, you can't. There's no opt out, right? You're, you are enslaved against your consent. Uh, the difference between a financial transaction and taxation or theft is consent. If I can say no to the transaction and take my business elsewhere, as can you, then we're, it's good. We're all consensual. But if I refuse the transaction and there's a threat of coercion, well, then that's the same situation I'm in with the mugger in the alley, right? I don't want to give you my wallet for free. It's like, okay, well, then I'll shoot you, right? So that's obviously um, theft, right? That's not a transaction. We wouldn't call it the transaction taking place in the alley. We'd call that getting mugged or, or getting robbed. And in terms of the dating market, you know, the difference between sex and rape is consent, right? Both parties need to be willing, able, and consenting to have a normal sexual engagement between two uh, willing adults. 
if that's absent on either side, right, if there's either party that wants to say no, but they're forced into it, well, then we would call that rape. So, you know, consent is very, very, very important. And I think we should strive to universalize it. I mean, it, it's the only way, it's the only rational way to deal with the reality that we are all rational beings and capable of choosing for ourselves. Yeah, the, this once again reminds me of Hoppe's argumentation ethics, which basically say that if uh, you have to, if you argue with someone, you have to respect their property rights uh, because property rights are derived from the fact that you own your own faculties. If you don't accept that, that you're using your tongue and your vocal cords and your lungs and so on to talk to, so that you, you're in possession of them and you own them. If you don't respect that in the other person, uh, so, so if you argue about something, uh, the ownership of something or, uh, who is the rightful owner of something and the conclusion and you discard the conclusion and then choose the, to, to, to take instead. So like if you argue about taxes with a taxman, for instance, and the taxman agrees with you about everything you say, but then still chooses to, to, uh, to force you to pay the taxes. It's that's when the argument turns into mockery. Like it's not an argument anymore. It's just, he's just a bully. <laughs> so it's not the, the argument ceases to be argue, argumentation ceases to be argumentation once property rights are, are uh, violated in any way, shape or form. And, uh, on this notion, like the, the thing you said about consent, like, uh, I love another series of yours that I highly recommend is the Hillebrand series with my, oh, our friend Max Hillebrand, uh, where you talk about the books, uh, the Rothbard book. The Ethics of Liberty, which is one of my favorite Austrian economics books, that, that one and uh, the Hoppus, um, which is another recommendation from Max, by the way, the, the um, Economic Science and the Austrian Method, I think it's the That's title. A it's a, yeah. yeah, it's, it's not a very clickbaity title, but, <laughs> but it's a great, very dense book. And those two books, I, I think they, they, uh, they frame this so well, uh, and, just about the things you've been talking about here about consent and how important it is. I have a, I actually have some stuff to say about that book. Um, I, that's a really, really, really good book. Uh, Hoppe's got a lot of good stuff. Very unsexy title, as you said, Economic Science and the Austrian Method, ESAM for short. Very short book, but like most of Hoppe's writing, very dense, very informative. I, I was blown away, actually, that he, one of the points that I took away from that book was that he's saying that like the, the mind-matter split, right, the, the Cartesian split that we all sort of inherited when, when Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, as if there's two fundamental realities, right? There's the subjective thinking mind, and then there is the objective world. Hoppe makes this point that it's actually, that perhaps actually this distinction between mind and matter or between subject and object is a subcategory of human action because it is only through human action where mind and matter come together, right? We're, we're, it's almost like we're using this distinction as like an artificial distinction that's useful in many ways, right? We could say all value is, valuation is subjective, for instance. You know, it's a matter of the mind rather than a matter of the world. But 
somehow action is like above that even action is the thing that allows subject and object duality to even come into existence where many of us i think in the western materialist worldview take subject object reality to be the most fundamental thing there is right that there is a, an actual split between mind and matter whereas in fact it seems to be most things are continuous right i, I don't know that there's an actual out there discrete split between mind and matter so that that blew my mind again just the the primacy of human action and how it's it's everywhere and i think that again ties nicely back into that book lila where persig's saying it almost in a different way that value is the ground stuff of reality that like there's no substance like value is the substance and it's something about actually would you mind giving us a tldr on on that book for uh, anyone who's not familiar with it tldr on lila um yeah i would mind because i don't know that that's actual actually possible let me just say so he's the the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which was the most popular or best-selling philosophy book in the West, I think in the 20th century, something like that. One of the best, maybe not the best. Uh, many people have read that one. Many people have heard of it if they haven't read it. Almost no one's heard of or read the book he wrote 15 years later, which is Leela, which is much better. And Persig, man, he's just like a next-level genius. He blends fiction... So there's like a fictional story blended with some elements of autobiography. He's actually writing about himself and his life and some of his experiences blended into this fictional narrative. And then there's a non-fictional uh, philosophical exploration about the nature of metaphysics and uh, value and quality. He distinguishes between dynamic and static value, et cetera. Um, the TLDR, I don't have a TLDR. He just gets into like all the things we're talking about. We're talking about the nature of value, the continuity between, you know, inorganic and organic reality. Let's say he gives different levels of value. He has the inorganic layer, biological, social, and intellectual. There's different patterns of value that basically interact. He describes how these layers interact sort of like a software system. Um, and it gives rise to basically a whole metaphysical framework that he puts forth that stuff and substance is not real. Value and morality is. So it's a, it's a very strong argument for the, the fundamental nature of, of, I guess you could say human action or value itself. And um, again, the ESAM book just sort of dovetails nicely with that one, where it's like making the argument that human action is this has this primacy that most people don't understand. And again, if all action is an expression of value, then we're kind of dancing around the, the same topic here, right? When, when you hear many people invoke the word value, this is again why I was hearkening to Peterson earlier, like I'd love to hear his like deep definition. I don't see how you escape human action. Like it's to act is to value, right? To, to express one's value. And so, yeah, that's, I guess that's what I would say about ESAM in general. And then I just to circle back to something you said earlier, Knut, about the, the tax man. You know, you're when you argue with someone, which was Hoppe's point, I think, you're implicitly acknowledging the reality of individual self-ownership. Right? You are using your faculties to try and put forth a point 
you're listening to another person employ their faculties to put forth their counterpoint. And the only way that process can unfold is if indeed you both own yourself, right? Like you, I own my faculties and I'm generating the points that I'm putting forth. You're assimilating that information, presumably, and generating your own counterpoint and putting those things forth. The only way we can do that is through this implicit acknowledgement of individuals owning themselves, individual self-ownership. And once the tax man says, okay, enough with that, you know, even if he agrees with you, right? Yes, we agree, blah, 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 but still pay me, right? Pay the tax. You're actually disacknowledging, if that's even a word, individual self-ownership. Because all of a sudden you're saying, well, that's all good. You own yourself. We had this argument. We reached a conclusion, but give me your stuff or I'm going to hurt you. Right. So you're, 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 you're actually, um, contradicting what argumentation confirms, right? You're disconfirming what argumentation confirms. Argumentation confirming that individuals own themselves. When you result to coercion and violence, you're disconfirming that reality. And when you do that, I mean, you unwind the entire process of human civilization, rational discourse, et cetera, et cetera. Because if people don't own themselves and it's just a free-for-all, then we're back to might is right, right? Who's got the biggest stick? Uh, who can coerce who the hardest? I think in Atlas Shrugged, there's a line. Uh, she said, when force becomes the standard by which men interact, then the the pickpocket loses out to the tyrant or the murderer, something like that. So the race becomes who is the most violent, right? Who can coerce and commit as much violence as possible? Well, guess what that happens? Guess what that does to the world, guys? When you commence that race, civilizations vanish in a spread of slaughter and ruin, I think, is, as she wrote as well. So it's hard to overstate how important rational discourse and respect for universal respect for individual life, liberty, and property is to the human enterprise. Okay, we have some big news. We have a new lead sponsor, Amber App. They're the number one exchange in the Southern Hemisphere. They're rated for the best customer service around, and their global launch is coming. But the reason we're partnering with Amber App is because of the people. If you haven't listened to our episode with Izzy, CEO of Amber App, you really should go check it out. You'll see why it made perfect sense to partner with Izzy and Amber App. That's all I'll say for now. You really have to check it out for yourself. They have loads of great features coming that we're excited to share with you when the time comes. But for now, just check out the episode, check out their website, amber.app. You can see for yourself why we're thrilled to bring Amber App on as our lead sponsor and partner. So go check it out. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, the privacy by default, open source, non-custodial Bitcoin wallet with CoinJoin built in. It's the easy to use, comprehensive, affordable way to make your coins private. And the best part is they've been making huge improvements to the app. They're really focusing on the user experience, adding advanced features for power users. They just keep getting better. You send your coins to your Wasabi Wallet and they get combined with loads of other coins using the Wabi Sabi protocol. So they're private on the other end. Your tracks are covered so you can work on expanding your freedom footprint without worrying about your privacy. So check out wasabiwallet.io and download Wasabi today. Yeah, and on that note, uh, I mean, what what happens is that uh, when when you have this class of of people that that are able to 
coerce and use force to extract stuff from other people. Uh, that's why you get clown world because the race becomes to to you know look good to these people so that you they will pay you or they will hurt you less. And so so I think what Bitcoin did like was uh, just turn that upside down and, and like give property rights back to the people. So in that sense, I think Bitcoin is one divided by clown world. It's the literal inverse of, of clown world incentives. And I find that, that yeah, that's my next equation. I need, I need to put that somewhere. Okay. <laughs> Bitcoin is one divided by clown world. Um, so so on um, back to Rothbard and Hopper because I love them so much. Uh, and, and also uh, Ayn Rand, but congrats on that beautiful little Video clip you did from the, from that section about money in the book. By the way, it was beautiful. Oh, they, I take no credit for that. My editor is a genius. I just read yes, the text he and is. send it to him, and he makes it beautiful. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Anyway, uh, what was uh, where was I going with this? Yeah, uh, about ownership uh, versus possession, because I think this is uh, on the same line of you know uh, argumentation and mockery. It's it's mm-hmm. adjacent, like. Ownership mm. is like a legal uh, relationship with with a a thing, right? Because like y- you can own a thing, but someone else may possess it, like yeah. the, the the gold that is legally belongs to African countries in some central banks in the West, but the West refuses to give it back or whatever. Like, but Bitcoin, what is owning a Bitcoin like? Uh, can you even own a Bitcoin? Can you possess it? Or is it just keeping a secret? Like, are we on an even deeper level of ownership than, than possession? Like, is this even, even more robust? Uh, like, what's, what's your thoughts on that? Because that's something that's been, you know, tickling my mind for a long time now. Yeah, it's very, very mysterious. Um, I think it was you, someone that coined the whole phrase, right? Like to, with Bitcoin owning and is now knowing, knowing and owning. Yeah. Yeah. The same knowing thing. is owning. Uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> but again, I would credit Kinsella here. Uh, I used to think, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. But he's like, well, actually you have to, you've got to uh, decompose this terminology a little bit because ownership is actually a legal, a legally um, enforceable claim on an asset, right? On a scarce, uh, scarce asset such that you can exclude others from its use. You could say ownership is like recourse to the legal apparatus of coercion to resolve a dispute, right? If someone steals your car, well, you might not be in possession of your car after they steal it, but you still own it, right? You have the title or whatever it may be. And so you can bring to bear force right legally to get it back right they can pull the guy over and arrest him and take the car and give it back to you and that's fundamentally different from possession which in a strict sense is just physical custody effectively and so bitcoin what can you own bitcoin you know i i guess you it sort of has a foot in both worlds in a way because a judge could pass a, a judge could make a judgment right and say hey this bitcoin belongs this bitcoin that's in possession of robert belongs to Canute. 
right? It's Canute is the rightful owner of this Bitcoin. But if I'm in possession of the keys, um, that's it's hard to enforce that, right? I can also have all this plausible deniability, like, oh, sorry, judge had the boating accident, right? You know, it's, it's all gone now. Um, so I guess in a strict legal sense, you can own Bitcoin and that a, a legal apparatus can tell you like who is the rightful owner of a specific private key. I don't, again, I don't, I'm not saying that this is being done, but, um, it, it can be done, I guess, but to possess Bitcoin is something entirely different, right? To actually have the private key. And even then you don't really have, you don't, you don't physically custody a piece of material reality, right? You've got an alphanumeric string. You've just got uh, information, right? Which as yeah. you're saying is like something like keeping a secret. And yeah, it's a great point. It's not, if, if, if possession meant physical custody, then you never really physically custody Bitcoin. You're just guarding that secret, which allows you to unlock the, the ability to spend from that UTXO set. Right. So it's, it's different somehow. And I guess in that sense, it's kind of like just, yeah, guarding a secret. I, I, yeah, I guess that's the best way to put it. And so, no, can you own it? Yes, technically, but the ownership is largely unenforceable. I think in most cases, can you possess it? Not really, because you can't physically possess the thing. It's just informational. So what can you do with it? Uh, you can, keep your private key guarded and secret and use it to the extent that you can do that. Yeah, because I think we need a whole whole plethora of new laws around this uh if if or or no laws at all because like the 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 current legal framework in different countries have different approaches to it and they try to enforce like old words world stuff onto this new thing. Mm-hmm. But 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 even Proving that someone is in possession of a Bitcoin is is impossible because how do you prove that someone knows something? That's like, right. Uh, you can't, and and like uh, it's kind of vulgar that they with those these chain anal companies that that try to do that and they try to set you no know, legal precedents for uh, for this stuff when when it you you. Not only can you not prove that someone is in possession of it, you cannot prove that someone else isn't. Like, you can guess the key. <laughs> I mean, it's the the chances of you guessing the right key are astronomically small, and that's why that's why we trust this thing to to the extent that we do. But at the end of the day, there's no real way to prove that someone has knowledge about something, and it's only when you put when you put this like on a computer on a hardware wallet or, a, you know, on a steel plate, then you turn it into a physical thing because then the letters are engraved in that thing. Uh, and then it becomes physical, but it doesn't have to be physical. And this is, I find this so insanely fascinating because like you can think of all sorts of situation where this, where this becomes problematic. Like if you have, um, if you fly with your 12 words, for instance, and you get stopped in the security check. What, what's stopping the security officer from just, you know, copying those words? Or, <laughs> uh, 
which is a whole new, uh, there's a whole slew of new problems there that come with, come with this notion of, of, uh, keeping a secret and not keeping a secret. And, and, uh, the, the thing, the thing it does, it, it, it invokes responsibility in people because it, once, once you dive down to the, in this rabbit hole, you realize that you, you have to keep the secret in the, the, like you, you, you have to figure out for yourself what the best way for you of keeping the secret is because there's no there's no universal answer to to how to keep a secret and so uh, yeah there's so much to unpack there because now with <laughs> i'm ranting on here i know but if if it's just keeping a secret they're a part of you <laughs> and that's so and how how big a part of you is up to you because it's opt in so you can you can have 100% of your wealth in bitcoin or you can have 1%. But how much you have in Bitcoin in comparison to how much you live in the uh, clown world, you, you have a tool now where, where you can choose to opt out to a specific percentage of your being. Like this 60% uh, of me can never be coerced into anything. Like I can, I can do that literally. I can say, well, okay, I, I can put up with some coercion to just to, uh, you know, have a police force and, you know, a fire brigade and whatnot. But, uh, I think I'm fine with just paying, uh, 15% taxes. I'll opt out of the rest. Thank you. And you can just do that. <laughs> and that's true for everyone in the world. And I find it so in insanely fascinating and how the, the question becomes how, how far off into the future, but I mean, how long will it take before everyone realizes that this is this is already true? Well, I, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think always answering questions about timing is very important. I'm sorry, very difficult. Obviously, very important, but very very difficult to say when something is going to happen. Uh, yeah, it's a stupid question. I know. I mean, that's <laughs> not stupid. It's very important, right? It's like, well, when would be very useful to know, but I think it's equally incredibly difficult to answer that question. So, uh, a couple things, just to like things you said there, right? It's astronomically difficult to guess someone's private key. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the right term might even be it's it's like beyond astronomically small the chances of actually guessing someone's private key it's like the more what is it the chances are like if you made a guess every second you would need longer than the life of the universe right to guess yeah. someone's private key so it's actually on average astronomically <laughs> small <laughs> yeah it's, yeah um, yeah so so infinitesimal that we obviously trust it as if it's not even possible effectively to guess someone's private key and then the other like aspect I would introduce is it sounds like, especially people that don't understand Bitcoin, like, oh my God, that's a lot of responsibility. That's scary. I'm going to carry this secret in my head. And like, what if I get knocked out or if I get amnesia or someone tortures me to get the key, you know, all of these things. It's not a binary, right? It's not you either trust someone else with your private key or you hold your private key between your ears. There's all these other possible custody schemas. Um, you know, I think multi-key or multi-sig is obviously very important here. You can take that secret, chop it into pieces, into mini-secrets, if you will, and distribute that among different 
people inside of your circle of trust. And then you need a, a certain quorum of those mini secrets to unlock spending ability, right? A two of three, three of five, et cetera. So there's ways to like de-risk it, you know, even take, even ratcheting down the responsibility to some degree that you'd still have a lot of responsibility to keep up with one of five, but if you lose it, it's not the end of the world. Whereas if it's a one of one, well, it, it is the end of that world, at least if you lose your private key. And also that gives you some resistance against just the whole, you know, against coercion, right? Against $5 wrenches or the guy stopping you in the airport, you know, trying to copy your, your seed phrase or whatever. You're not subject to a single point of failure. So I always think that's a very important point when we talk about these topics because people get scared when they hear, what do you mean? I have to memorize my whole life's worth and if I forget or mess up, but I'm, it's over. And so that's important. Yeah, you can have all, all sorts of solutions at the same time. You can have a multi-sig, you can have a single-sig hardware wallet and a custodial phone wallet, different, different solutions for different purposes, right? So... Uh, yeah, and I, I think that we need to educate people more about that that aspect of it. That Bitcoin can be extremely simple to use, but that then they're somewhat at risk, and they can be hard to. It can be hard to set up a a really, you know, theft proof uh, solution. But on the other hand, they're they're probably they will probably there be there forever. Yeah, so it's like you know. You put a few dollars in your pocket to go out at night, you know, that might be your equivalent to your hot wallet, right? You might have a few more, if you're traveling, you might have a few more dollars hidden inside your suitcase somewhere, right? This kind of like your uh, little account you'll draw from as you're traveling, you'll swap US dollars for local currency or whatever it may be. That's kind of like a, maybe like a non-custodial wallet, something like that. And then, you know, you're the vast majority of your wealth for most people, anyone that has uh, any amount of wealth, you know, like well over 90%, you'd probably keep in a deep cold storage multi-sig device, right? And that would be equivalent to, I don't know, a, a, a bank account for most people, which is not actually a good solution because there's counterparty risk there, uh, might be equivalent to gold in a vault or gold buried in the ground for others. But yeah, it's just a reinforce your point, it, it, you don't need one solution, right? You can have different solutions for different use cases and you can rebalance and reallocate as needed. Your earlier question though, like when, when do people realize this? Um, you've probably heard me say this before because I say it all the time, but I just don't think most people move until they feel sufficient pain, right? I, there's not a lot of nerds in the world that want to sit here and spend all this time going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole that are curious enough, that are intelligent enough, patient enough to, to really try and learn all these lessons, right? Or trying to understand computer science and economics and incentives and, you know, all the different uh, disciplines that Bitcoin touches or that you touch going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I don't think a lot of people have the patience or wherewithal to go into that to to get the Bitcoin, Bitcoin orange pill epiphany. But what most people do have is a tacit experience of pain, right? Like if their bank account is frozen 
or they can't get their capital out of a country or their currency is hyperinflating or they're a rich guy and you know living in Russia and Putin's going to seize their company or seize their yacht or re- otherwise redistribute their wealth forcibly well that starts to really give people the light bulb moment it's like oh shit okay my stuff is getting taken or my currency is failing or whatever situation i'm being subjected to under this duress, right, this actual pain, painful experience I'm living through kind of forces people to start evaluating their options. And as we've discussed and laid out, there seems to be only really one viable option for an asset that cannot be forcibly taken from you, um, assuming you've custodied it properly. So I think, unfortunately, we have to go through more pain. We have to go through more hyperinflations, more forced asset seizures, more statism before we see Bitcoin really start to shine in the eyes of the majority. Just to play the devil's advocate here for a while, if I were to make a counter argument to that, that would be places like Lebanon or Argentina or Zimbabwe, where Venezuela, where hyperinflation is a real thing. I mean, Bitcoin adoption exists there, but it's not big. Like, uh, well, so, and that might be because these countries started to hyperinflate way before people knew about Bitcoin at all. Can we, can we trust that pain will turn people into hyper Bitcoinization mode? Like, <laughs> it's, it's hard to formulate this question, but, but just curious about your thoughts. Well, I mean, uh- the other thing is we have to keep in mind where we are in Bitcoin's monetization process, right? Like Bitcoin will not be purchasing power stable in the short run for a long time, right? It's just just too small of a market cap at this point. Maybe when it's in the tens of trillions of dollars in market cap, it's, its short-term purchasing power will be more stable. And that really tends to be what people are looking for, particularly in hyperinflations, right? They want to get out of the purchasing power, unstable currency, the currency that's plummeting in purchasing power day over day, week over week. And they want to get into a short-term purchasing power, stable currency. That tends to be the US dollar, right? When Zimbabwe hyperinflates, people want to get into dollars. So the pain I'm not saying it's like you feel the pain once and then all of a sudden you're like orange pilled and you're all in on Bitcoin. But if you could imagine going further into the future, sure, currencies that hyperinflate today, maybe they want to dollarize. Um, and I would expect this to this pattern to continue to play out actually. As weaker currencies fail, you would see more of these economies or individuals in those economies looking to move their savings into dollars. Um, just again, as a means of gaining short-term purchasing power stability. But what happens when the U.S. dollar, which is also being counterfeited rampantly, you know, I think we've increased the supply of U.S. dollars to the tune of 50% or more in the past three years. I, I, the number, 50 to 60%, I think, are the numbers that I've heard over the past three the, years. The best, the best number I've uh, seen there is, is in 2021, $21 million were printed per Bitcoin mined. $7 trillion, like uh, divided by <laughs> number of Bitcoins printed. Right. And so that was in one year. And that was when the US, well, M2 was probably in the neighborhood of 
I don't know, 15 to 18, 20 trillion, something like that. I'm, I'm actually not sure. I think sure about seven trillion were, were printed. I, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to define because M2 and M1, they're, they're sort of diffuse terms, right? It, it's not the money in circulation, really. And so it's kind of hard to describe it. What I wanted to get at is, is that it's a call it a 50% increase in the, the money supply, whatever your gauge you're using. And someone can check my math, but I think roughly over the past three years, we've expanded US dollar supply 50%, five zero or more. So all these other countries that are dollarizing and, um, you know, people would say, oh, this bullish dollars, dollar is going to last forever, but it's like, okay, well, what is the US dollar? U.S. dollar is just the best of the worst, right? It's just another fiat currency that weaker fiat currencies are collapsing into. So what happens, and when you study the nature of fiat currencies, I think you'll quickly determine that they really only head one direction, right? There are massive incentives to counterfeit them into worthlessness over time. So the big question becomes, what happens when major currencies or even the U.S. dollar start to hyperinflate? Where do people run then? You can't dollarize out of a U.S. dollar-denominated hyperinflation. So what do you do then? That's where I think the pain, the real pain that's going to wake people up uh, is going to come. And a lot of people will say, you know, uh, Santiago Capital, Brett uh, Johnson, he will just tell you this is never going to happen. The U.S. dollar is going to last forever. We're just such a badass imperialist country. There's no way we'll ever let the dollar fall and blah, blah, blah. Um, I just don't buy it. I just simply don't buy it. I think human beings follow incentives. The incentives of having a U.S. dollar fiat currency as a central bank is to just keep producing it and using it to extract wealth. Um, that ultimately leads to the debasement of the currency and eventually a hyper debasement or hyperinflation of the currency. And I think there's also major incentives for foreign counterparties to dump dollars over time. And we already see the the BRICS countries, right? Uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, talking about launching a currency that's orthogonal to the US dollar, right? And, and commodity-based and all of these things. So We've already moved from this kind of unipolar dollar world to much more of a multipolar world with especially the the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I would expect that to continue. All of that results in diminishing demand for the US dollar, which is going to mean more dollar printing. And I, you know, I think we see US dollar hyperinflation. Now, again, timing, very scary to talk about here. But I already put out a public prediction, so I'll stick with it. I think by the year 2035, we see the U.S. dollar going into hyperinflation. And so the big question for me is like, what then? What what do you dollarize into at that point? Right? There's there's no you've you've used up all the options in the fiat currency stack. Right? You've been scurrying up the liquidity hierarchy to the most liquid fiat currency to escape your local hyperinflation. Well, what happens when the point of escape becomes the point of failure. Where do people go then? So, well, take take the orange pill now, or be forced to take the orange suppository later. That's <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you could take the orange pill orally now, or it'll be forced as a, as a suppository later, perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> the show is also sponsored by Orange Pill App. 
the Bitcoin social layer app for iOS and Android, where you can stack friends who stack sats. You can connect with your favorite Bitcoiners on the app, make local connections, and even connect with Bitcoiners around the world. And a big feature on Orange Pill app is Vents. You can see what's going on in your area and connect with Bitcoiners around you. I've been to multiple Orange Pill app events and they brought Bitcoiners together from all over. The best part is, you know it's high signal. There's no spam on Orange Pill app because everyone pays to be there. It's just $3 a month. So download Orange Pill app on Apple or Android and get connected to the Bitcoin social layer. Next up, the Bitcoin way. Their mission is to onboard, educate, and remove barriers to taking self-custody of your Bitcoin. They cover everything from cold wallets to nodes, no KYC Bitcoin purchases, inheritance planning, payments, and more. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or you're an experienced Bitcoiner looking to expand your freedom footprint, or you know someone who this sounds perfect for, the Bitcoin way has something for you. They have a skilled team, well-versed in the Bitcoin space, and their goal is to make all the complexities of Bitcoin as straightforward as possible for everyone. And the best part is you can get started with a free 30-minute call with their team. Go to thebitcoinway.com contact for more info. Our newest sponsor is Geyser. They are the portal to the creator economy on Bitcoin. On Geyser, creators can monetize their work through their communities in a social and engaging way, and supporters can send sats to their favorite projects. Geyser has also recently integrated with Zaps and Podcasting 2.0, so every Zap sent to a Geyser address shows up on the Geyser page. We have a Geyser fund ourselves. It's the best way to support our show directly with Bitcoin. So whether you're a creator or a supporter, check out Geyser at geyser.fund today. Okay, let's, let's, let's just a weird thought. Uh, I, I love to try to extrapolate the thought vectors as far off into the future as possible, as you know. So, so we talked a bit about volatility. And in your mind, does Bitcoin ever become stable? Because... Uh, imagine a hyper-Bitcoinized world where everything is priced in Bitcoin and all the fiat currencies have died. And you have, I mean, we're, uh, us three dorks here, we're like the first generation of Bitcoiners. And people like us are going to lose a lot of Bitcoin along the way. We're, we're, we're not going to be able to, to like s- store them properly. And so, so, so I think people are underestimating the sat squeeze because of just people losing their keys here and there, boating accidents and so on. So, so if that is the case and you get into this global sound money free market with increased productivity everywhere and the purchasing power go up, like the, there's a point where like technology is adopted an S curve, but I don't really ever see the top of this in necessarily in Bitcoin, because what would be the top? Like when all the people are on board, well, there's still more money. Well, when all the money is on board, well, there's still more productivity. Like, does it ever end? And combine that with more and more Bitcoins lost. Like this thing is, you know, is the forever Laura thing, but the, 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 <laughs> the weirdness of the, the rate of forever lore on this, if you will. <laughs> well, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Oh man, that's a great, so this whole, the infinity divided by 21 million, right? It's like, where, where's the top? Well, we just call it infinity, right? So, uh, it's very interesting to me because what you have, you know, assuming the Bitcoin thesis plays out is you have a guaranteed fraction like to whatever degree money is being demanded 
as uh, to be held as savings, as cash balances, right? It's going to be a reflection of the capital that's available in the marketplace. That capital is a reflection of how productive we actually are. And um, I actually just listened this morning to uh, Guy Swan read Alan Farrington's piece on the killer app of Bitcoin being it properly pricing capital. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, so Bitcoin's going to improve productivity a number of ways. One, and this would be Hoppe's point in uh, a theory of socialism and capitalism, the degree to which private property is made less viable, which is to say that theft is more expensive, difficult, or risky, is the same degree to which we are incentivizing people to produce rather than steal, right? It's like there's two roads to wealth acquisition. I can make it or I can take it. And if taking is very difficult, if stealing is very difficult, well, then I'm left with the, only the other option, which is making, right? Creating things of value, trading with other people consensually, et cetera. We've already talked about how Bitcoin sort of tilts the scales away from making and towards, away from taking and towards making. And that because it's expensive to steal, and if you start stealing people's stuff, right? If you start stealing my yachts and houses and whatever, well, then maybe I'll just start selling everything else and putting it into Bitcoin and moving elsewhere where the government doesn't steal my stuff or I have stronger property rights. So you get this self-organizing dynamic in the world where people are going to be more likely to engage in consensual trade, long-term trading relationships, making in general, and less so in taking. Now, Alan's point in his paper was interesting too, that we have a really hard time pricing capital appropriately under the current fiat paradigm. Um, and when you start to price capital appropriately, you actually increase productivity that people are actually able to figure out, you know, through a, a sound and reliable price signal or profit signal which uses of capital are satisfying the most human wants, right? You get a very clear signal about where that capital needs to go. Whereas in a fiat paradigm, you have more of this short-termism, um, just trying to generate the quarterly profit, you know, long-term results be damned. So I think Bitcoin, you know, again, I only listened to this once today and I can't expand upon it super intelligently, but to the extent that Bitcoin allows the proper pricing of capital, I think it also increases human productivity. And so all these ex expansions that Bitcoin's providing via its incentive system to human productivity are, interestingly enough, also accretive to the purchasing power that Bitcoin represents over time. So it's like, uh, you know, the, the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail, this is like the inverse of that, right? It's like the snake feeding its own mouth or something. You know, Bitcoin's actually creating more human productivity through these incentives and then thus fattening the snake and the purchasing power that Bitcoin itself is a reflection of as it monetizes. So what is the top of that? I mean, how can any of us possibly know? It's like asking what is the pinnacle of human development, right? What is, what's the final stage of human evolution? How far are we going to get? Are we going to the stars? Are we going to other dimensions? Where does human ingenuity hit a ceiling? You know, it's like the equivalent question. So I, I really have no, no clue, but it is certainly fun to think about. And if you, and if you frame it that way, 
It's like, okay, to hold, this is why Bitcoin is legacy. I don't want to say it's wealth, right? Money is not wealth necessarily, but it's, it's legacy purchasing power preservation because it, you hold a, a basically a claim on all the successful entrepreneurial enterprises that have occurred and will ever occur in human history for the rest of time. And you can own, you know, one, one twenty-one millionth of that or 10, 21 millionths of that or 121 millionths of that, whatever fraction you want. And to your earlier point, obviously the new, the denominator is decreasing, right? It's not 21 million. What, how many coins are there really? 17, 15, whatever. Um, so that's very, like, it's a very powerful framing for just how legacy altering Bitcoin can be. Everything there is and everything there ever will be divided by, well, well, at most supposedly 21 million. 21 million. <laughs> yeah. Rob, I absolutely love the conversations we have, and I, I uh, sincerely hope that we get to do more of them, uh, preferably in person, but also online. I mean, we just need to keep this conversation going. I think that's, that's the way forward. So thanks very much for coming on. Um, Luke, do you have any final questions for Rob before we round this out? Uh, well, I, yeah, I was just going to say that, uh, the last, uh, yeah, I don't know, hour or so here, very bullish, uh, enjoying the energy. Um, it, to, to be honest, I don't have anything specific, uh, anything else would be into a, a rabbit hole, but, uh, I've appreciated your, uh, your time and, uh, take on this, uh, any final thoughts, anything else oh, on your mind these oh, days? What, 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 what <laughs> Rob, sincerely, you should have Luke on and uh, on your show and talk about Maps of Meaning. That's um, that's my recommendation for the day. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. Um, yeah. I, I would definitely love to. So please feel free to like email me. What we usually do is a conversation outline beforehand, and then I'll just go through that, and we can get a, a time to talk on the books. Um, and yeah, Knut, thank you for having me. Um, always enjoy our conversations. I, you know, this, it's mind bending still to me that it's just this, just this monetary innovation. It's just, I never thought it would be such a philosophical rabbit hole in so many different directions. And, um, I don't know, sometimes I catch myself, like the things I'm reading about or thinking about, I'm like, how did this all, how did Bitcoin lead to all this? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I feel very grateful, but, um, also maybe even overwhelmed at times is how many different directions Bitcoin takes the mind. And so always really like, really like talking to you because it seems like you're on a similar path and we always have fun things to talk about. Right back at you. Um, yeah. Came for the Lambo, stayed for the Zen, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, yep. I think, I think that's a perfect way to end it on. So thanks again, Rob, for uh, joining us on the Freedom Footprint Show. Thank you guys. Yeah, like, subscribe, and brush your teeth, and click the little bell for notifications, and follow Rob's channel as well. Actually, did you want to do an official where you want to, where do you want <laughs> us to find you? Uh, yeah, I, I'm whatismoneypodcast.com, uh, or Twitter's my biggest social platform, at breedlove22. Perfect. Thanks again. This has been the Freedom Footprint Show. So what did you think of that episode with Robert? I really enjoyed digging into Maps of Meaning with him, and his explanation of Leela has sent that book right to the top of my reading list. What was your favorite moment? Let us know. 
You can send us a boostogram on Fountain, leave us a comment on YouTube, or get in touch on Noster or Twitter. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the channel. Our show sponsors are Amber App, Wasabi Wallet, Orange Pill App, The Bitcoin Way, and Geyser. Check out their details in the description. That's all for now. See you next time, and thanks for listening.